0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Giving Voice podcast. I'm Chloe and I'm so excited to be hosting this podcast one last time before I graduate and venture into the world of work as a speech-language therapist. We've had so much fun making the podcast this year and if you hadn't, haven't yet had a listen to our previous episodes I'd really recommend going back and having a look. We've covered this year um, some experiences of students on the course, we've also spoken to SLTs from abroad who are working in the UK and also vice versa, SLTs from the UK who are working abroad. We have a really interesting episode lined up for you today, all about social prescribing and the role of speech and language therapists in this area. And I'll be honest with you, social prescribing was a totally new concept to me prior to starting to put this podcast together. So here with me to help guide us through is social prescribing student champion and year A speech and language sciences student at UCL Katie. Hi Katie. Hello. <laughs> it's lovely to have you here with us today. Thank you. Um I was wondering if we could start by you just kind of explaining how this episode has come about. Yes. So,
1: um when I joined the course, um, I became aware of the Student Champion Scheme, um, and uh, I'd heard about social prescribing in my role prior to the course, which um, was as an SLTA in the hospital. Um, so, I decided it was something I really wanted to be involved in during my time at university. Um, and basically, part of the, the role is... Um, to try and advocate for and promote um, social prescribing um, amongst allied health professional students. Um, And so I thought that an amazing way to do that would be (laughs) to come on the Giving Voice podcast um, and uh, talk a bit more about what social prescribing is um, and how it's kind of relevant to speech and language therapists.
0: Yeah. And thank you so much for reaching out to us because I feel like, like I said, this is an area that most people i've spoken to on the course were not aware of um prior to you kind of um advertising it um around the course in general so it's it's really great that we're speaking about this Um, so before we go any further with this podcast um, i think it would be really helpful to get an overview of what social prescribing is for those of you listening that don't know Um, So we're going to speak to Julie, who is your social prescribing mentor, Mm -hmm. and she's going to describe a little bit about what social prescribing is. I'm joined by Julie Lowe. Um, Julie is a former speech and language therapist who supports the Allied Health Professional Student Social Prescribing Scheme as a mentor and the Social Prescribing champions Schemes run by the National Academy for Social Prescribing and NHS England and Improvement.
2: And Julie's going to give us a bit of an overview of social prescribing. Thanks, Clary. So yes, I'm gonna give you a quick overview of what social prescribing is and how it can benefit the people that we work with and why it's so important for speech and language therapists. So starting with the question, what is social prescribing? So social prescribing is the act of connecting people to support in their community, including statutory services like benefits and welfare advice or social activities and groups to meet people's practical, social and emotional needs that affect their health and well-being. And this is most important because we know that about 90% of the factors that make someone healthy are outside the healthcare that they receive. So it's things like how much money someone has, how safe and secure they feel, the environment they live in, the relationships they have with other people, how fulfilled they feel, how well they eat, how active they are. And the other 10% of what makes people healthy is about the healthcare that they receive. So that's medical interventions um, and lots of the support that we give as speech and language therapists. But the 10% is still influenced by that 90%, those broader factors, because lots of people are unable to access healthcare services or unable to engage with the interventions offered because of those wider factors in their life. So... For example, someone living on a low income might not be able to afford high quality childcare or specialist toys for um, children who might have speech and language needs, or people who are very lonely and isolated are quite unlikely to have the motivation to follow speech and language rehabilitation programmes. And so for us as as speech and language therapists, we have to consider lots of factors in a person's life to deliver really personalised care that has maximum impact. And one of the ways we can do that is through social prescribing. So connecting people to all of those diverse community assets to meet those broader practical, social and emotional needs that might help them to engage more um, with the healthcare that we can give them. And you might be thinking, well, of course, I do that anyway in my practice. I make lots of referrals to other services. I help connect people to social activities. And that's really brilliant because um, most people do routinely do social prescribing as part of their job. But some of us could also be doing more. Um, and luckily there's a brilliant allied health professions social prescribing framework to follow that gives people lots of hints and tips really on how they can become more involved and um, with the wider factors that influence people's health and there's a broader agenda to this really in terms of health inequalities so again if we're providing a service that people can't access or they're not able to engage with then really we're not providing access, we're not providing healthcare to the whole population um, and those people can be some of the people who are most in need of our support. So I'll talk a bit about the Allied Health Professions Framework and then I'll finish on a bit of an illustration, really, that hopefully will um, give you an example of how this should happen in practice. So the framework consists of four sections and it goes across a spectrum from Allied Health Professions acting as active sign posters. So this is where we give people information about something that might help them and we encourage them to take it up. So that could be something like a peer support group for someone with aphasia, or it could be something like um, connecting with a benefits advisor if someone expresses some concerns about their finance. And this works really well for people who are um, quite motivated, quite engaged, who understand the information that's given to them, um, but it might work less well for somebody with higher support needs. So at the other end of the spectrum, we have allied allied health professionals supporting growth and development of social prescribing across the health sector. And that might be something like offering communication awareness training to social prescribing link workers or to local early years play groups Um, and i just mentioned social prescribing link workers who are a really important part of how this works Um, and they are a fantastic workforce who've existed for a long time in the volunteering community enterprise sector but in the last few years they've been introduced into primary care in the nhs and what they do is a brilliant job of supporting people with that wide range of needs and they provide truly personalized care So where we might be limited in our jobs to working with a specific client group or too busy to offer multiple appointments or where we offer um, we lack knowledge about community offers like benefits and welfare services a link worker can step in and so the framework in the middle of that spectrum includes referring to link workers where you're not the best person to help somebody with broad needs and the fantastic thing about that is you can work in partnership to supporting a person Um, and the way that you find link workers can be through your local voluntary services council or contacting GP practices. So I'm just gonna finish with a a quick illustration really of how this partnership can work. Um, And it's a fictional story, but it's based on scenarios that came up quite often in my previous clinical experience. And it's the story of Valerie and her daughter, Anna, who come to an early years speech and language clinic after a couple of canceled appointments. And at the appointment, Valerie becomes quite tearful and says she's struggling with finances after her marriage broke down. And she's living with parents and Anna in an overcrowded home. Valerie feels guilty that she's not able to provide Anna with more support with her speech and language because she's working night shifts. And Valerie's parents look after Anna at home, but they prefer to use a different language. And so Valerie is feeling really guilty that she might be the cause of Anna's language difficulties. Um, and now clinically, our reaction to this is to support that early language development and offer information, advice and bilingualism. And we might also offer some parent-child interaction training um, or another intervention. But realistically, that home situation means that Valerie and Anna might not attend those appointments or they might not be able to engage with those appointments as as fully as we'd like. Um, And Valerie is really stressed and worried. So is this going to be her top priority at point in time? And so by offering a referral to a social prescribing link worker, Valerie can access really valuable support with her finances and benefits. And maybe Anna can be offered free or low cost playgroups and receive some new toys from a community lending library. And so working together, that speech and language therapist and that social prescribing link where I could meet the healthcare needs of Anna, but also the support needs of her family, resulting in a far more effective partnership where people can access the healthcare that we're offering to them. And we're also providing them with the support that they really need at the time that they need it.
0: And now, Uh, We have a really exciting guest with us um, in the studio. This is Mariam, um, and you're a mentor for Allied Health Professionals who are student champions for social prescribing. Yes. You're not a practising SLT, are you?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not actually working as an SLT at the moment. Do you know what? I would probably describe myself as a... I'm working in kind of a non-traditional SLT sort of capacity. I'm at zero zero, zero <laughs> to Those people who are not okay. me, <laughs> but sort okay. of. So I'm still. So kind of my te- my official role at the moment is I work. I'm best start for baby team lead, which basically just means I'm working in a multidisciplinary naught to two early intervention project so i'm still like registered and all of that kind of stuff and i'm still using all of my speech and language therapy skills but i'm just not working my role isn't a speech and language therapist yeah so it's this really interesting space yeah of like early intervention slash prevention essentially um i'm also doing some work with a charity called the magpie project where we, where is actually where I would see myself doing social prescribing, actually. Right. And that's come about in a really kind of quite organic way before I even was calling it social prescribing, really. Um, So, yeah, make of that what you will. I would probably describe myself as somebody who has a background in speech and language therapy, but is currently um, exploring... (laughs)
0: Um, We're really grateful that you can come and speak to us today because I think you give us uh, a kind of different perspective on social prescribing and um, I'm I'm imagining that you have some, some really good experience and insight into it as well. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Um, In terms of your, so you've described a little bit about your current role, but in terms Mm -hmm. of your background with Mm. speech and language therapy, could you maybe kind of talk us through your story a little bit? Yeah, so um, I've
3: always sort of worked in the early years space, um, um, so a children's therapist essentially um i did actually some of the inspiration for venturing into early years as kind of my main area of practice was whilst i was a student i was um on placement in a forensic mental health uh, adult forensic right. mental health unit and all of the 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 stories and 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 the nature of the 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 the, the, the kind of long standing chronic um socially mediated and mitigated um, and economic issues that people's lives were chronically fractured by mm. um all sort of led me back to the early years and that's where a lot of it would have started and, and begun so this kind of passion for early early prevention work and early intervention work is something that really took root for me at that point as a student um so yeah I think it's a really actually being involved with the student champions is also really it feels like heart work because I think it's a really pivotal point actually for that professional development that actually I think we tend to unfortunately lose as we progress through the career so yeah
0: Yeah I think you're right from speaking to different um, Mm. speech and language therapists on placements Mm. it does feel like partly you get used to the pattern of working that Mm. you've Kind of fallen into, and mm-hmm. that can mean that you don't think particularly innovatively and creatively about ways outside of that that you can support yeah. people, but also time and resources. Yeah. yeah, and unfortunately,
3: the way that the system is sort of designed is that kind of that reproduction of culture and ideas is easier, rewarded, and generally more accessible. Mm. Um, so it becomes this sort of multi-layered systemic. Issue that our work kind of stagnates and and yeah, in, innovation kind of really does unfortunately die unless we really are trying to hold on to it. It would be my experience.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, at what point did you become more kind of formally acquainted with social prescribing?
3: I would say in part actually when I received the, I can't remember where I heard about the uh, student champion scheme, but I became aware of them looking for mentors Mm -hmm. and I looked through what that meant and what exactly they were seeking and I realised I was doing that work already yeah. without formally calling it student champions i before understanding the language of student champions and and the kind of the social prescribing work i probably would have looked at my work through kind of a public health lens and i would have approached it as that being my priority again thinking about it within the kind of early intervention slash prevention priority space um but actually i think the the social prescribing Um, aspect lends itself more favorably to the work that I'm doing was how I would I would view it really but definitely some overlap with public (laughs) health yeah
0: and then um, I really wanted to ask you about um, I guess you've kind of touched on it a little bit but um, any kind of challenges that you faced with trying to integrate that social prescribing work into speech and language therapy and yeah yeah (laughs) so i mean unfortunately i probably i'm probably not the most hopeful of stories
3: because i'm not working as a speech and language therapist at the moment Mm -hmm. so if that tells you anything is that i've actually really struggled to survive um, systems and being in in jobs that haven't been actively encouraging of creativity and innovation, and so what that has looked like for me is to sort of carve out my own path. Really, like I'm working in a, as I mentioned in a, in a job where I'm working within that naught to two space, so very much yeah. prevention and early intervention. I'm working with a charity, um, where we work with um families who are precariously housed um, and are at risk of homelessness and thinking about early intervention and prevention in those vulnerable um, populations and communities where we know they are they are vulnerable to developing um, communication difficulties just by virtue of sitting at those social and economic sort of health inequity Mm -hmm. um, junctures and, and those kind of systemic oppressions and all of this work unfortunately hasn't really been possible for me to do within the spaces that I've been in in terms of officially practicing as a speech and language therapist be that in the NHS or I've primarily worked in the NHS um so it's 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 tricky Mm -hmm. but I'm I am actually hopeful I I think that having some of these conversations and um raising the profile of this work um means that we are potentially going to move towards a model and a kind of an iteration of this work that is accessible to those more rigid um, structures.
1: Yeah, I hope. Um, I just wanted to add to that. um, I think when I was researching about social prescribing this year, I think the thing that really struck me is how it's kind of been building and building and building. And then in 2019, it really felt like it was reaching a point where it might become fully integrated and a lot easier for speech and language therapists to kind of um have it as part of their official role and then it feels like COVID kind of came along and Mm. it's just stalled all of that. So I don't know, it'd be really interesting to hear from your perspective if that you feel, if that is the case that it kind of, it was getting somewhere, or is Mm. that just something that I've kind of put there?
3: Yeah, I would say that it really will vary from kind of borough to borough, area to area. Because I think some of, I mean, and I'll speak as an early years years therapist, I think some of the work of social prescribing for it to be able to be achievable and accessible, particularly within the more rigid structures like the NHS, we are really relying on the existence of other services around us, which we can then plug people into. Now, the reality of the the conditions and the circumstances is that, you know, 10 plus years of austerity, it will really vary in terms of how many children's centres you have access to or other community spaces. So, and of course, Covid definitely hasn't helped that situation. So for me, I would say that the work of social prescribing, whether or not the language is being used, Is there? There's a, there's a, there's a drive and a want and a a recognition of its significance within speech and language therapy and the work within early years, but often we are very much relying on those other spaces existing, Mm -hmm. and if they're not there, then often we shut down at that point and just carry on doing what we're doing, because it feels like too big a beast, really.
0: So there's there's kind of the two sides to it then there's the Mm. the community resources being available Mm. but I was wondering within the actual speech and language therapy space is there anything you see that needs to change there in terms of kind of allowing people uh, allowing speech and language therapists to do this work
3: yeah I would say that the the work needs to be more bottom-up mm-hmm um, and it needs to be bottom up the uh, like as early as possible. So again, I'll speak, this is obviously reflecting just my experiences, but kind of as a student speech and language therapist, as a band five speech and language therapist, we are often most at mercy of those top down structures, yeah. which is actually when we're most agile, creative and innovative, and we're fresh out of the literature, we're thinking about things, we're new, we're fresh, we've got ideas. And actually what the system does is at those earlier stages, instead of encouraging and nurturing that creativity and that freshness and that new perspective, it asks you to switch all of that off and conform to these job descriptions that have been put in place for you from somebody who's probably Mm. been doing the job for about 20 plus years. Yeah. And so actually what happens is that by the time you are anywhere near being able to have some creative control over your work, those you know that freshness that newness that newness of perspective that richness that you would have once embodied is is a long and distant memory yeah and what happens is we're just constantly reproducing that cycle um so my I would be saying is yes it's it's about nurturing that creativity and that innovation and trusting that being a student or being a band five doesn't mean Mm. that you don't have the skills and the insight in fact you probably have it more
0: than somebody
3: who's been in the system for you know however many years
0: yeah and I was going to ask you Katie as someone who is a student champion and so you have maybe even more knowledge than most students about the the resources available have you felt that on placements you've had the opportunity to do some of this work Mm, that's a
1: good question (laughs) um I think probably not um i think definitely my only real exposure to it has been in my role before yeah coming onto the course and i think that is partly to do with what you were saying mariam about um like just time like my mainstream primary school placement was very busy yeah. um and my other one was in a specialist setting, which like was very structured, very kind of had their way of doing things, which worked amazingly for the, the students who were there, but didn't leave a huge amount of space for that innovation or, or thinking mm. about things in maybe that more kind of mm. um, holi- holistic, bottom up way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah so I think it it definitely seems like one of those things that is a challenge but I completely agree with what you were saying Mm. about
3: um, I'm really curious as to what you're saying in terms of time and what comes to my mind is like time versus priority Mm. because what what's Mm. our commitment where is our where is our priority is our priority to keep reproducing the same um, parameters around practice and the work of speech and language therapy or are we ever going to move into a more urgent priority of actually questioning and and thinking about the impact of our work within the context of people's lives
0: yeah Mm. so this really needs to be written in or built into the way that we learn as students and the way that we're Mm. assessed because unfortunately i do think that the way we're assessed is incredibly relevant to the skills that we build up so if there was you know, we, we have a focus on holistic care in our lectures, but when it comes down to the actual competencies that we're being mm-hmm. assessed on, I don't think it is a priority. Mm. And unfortunately, that means, like you're saying, our time gets consumed with, you know, ensuring that we've done all the appropriate assessments mm. that we need to have ticked off and ensuring that we've done the kind of one-to-one interventions that we need to do. Mm-hmm. So maybe it, it needs to be integrated more. Mm that's Definitely. really
3: yeah yeah and a commitment to sort of reimagining right i feel like if anything over the last couple of years in terms of covid really highlighting for us the existence of sort of social economic health inequalities in our society racism being a prevalent feature across all areas of of, of all sectors including you know our work as speech yeah. and language therapists and 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 our commitment to sort of anti-racist practice like the kind of the commitment to reimagining is really um, I wish it would be more of a priority because as Mm -hmm. you say like in terms of this reproduction of these are the competencies the you know that all of that doesn't those kind of conversations that are happening they're not clearly not being reflected in in how you're being assessed and and taught Mm -hmm. and it's almost like yeah it just feels like this bizarre empty dialogue that happens Mm -hmm. um and then yeah just the urgency of translating that into practice and training like i'm not sure who where and when that's gonna occur um and at what cost because we want speech and language therapy to be relevant we know it has the potential to be you know a real source of liberation in terms of praxis for people who Mm. need our work um but that translating really urgently needs to needs to occur for it to for that to be a reality
1: yeah yeah and i think like from what i've been learning about social prescribing there's a real recognition that speech and language therapy needs this and this needs speech and language therapy Mm -hmm. um like the the royal society um for public health like just recognises allied health professionals and speech language therapists as kind of vital to this working for Mm. the NHS. Mm. Um, And so that's why I think maybe because I'm slightly naive I am I I do have quite a lot of hope (laughs) that like this is a really good time for new speech and language therapists and old speech and language therapists to kind of come together and think you know is this something that we can integrate into our services Mm -hmm. even if it's just as kind of a starting point you know a project here and there that a student could potentially do on a on a placement for them like Mm -hmm. thinking about how social prescribing can be integrated into their service more. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah and I I really like what you're saying as well marium about it's um we have a tendency to think of these things as additions that we can add Mm -hmm. to speech and language therapy but we're you're kind of speaking about actually an overhaul or a a change of perspective Mm -hmm. um and using social prescribing as a kind of framework rather than something that you sprinkle on
3: absolutely on top absolutely Mm -hmm. I think it's ultimately going to be the thing that part of one of the things that's going to save speech and language therapy from becoming redundant frankly right because how do we move beyond um, speech and language therapy being something that's thought of as something that occurs within a clinic room Mm. Mm mm-hmm how do we put communication back into the democratic and realistic context of people's lives, which is the community? Mm. People don't need to have communication skills that are assessed and measured in a a room with a stranger. But actually, like, how does the work of of speech and language therapists continue to be relevant?
0: Yeah, Mm. it's really inspiring. This conversation actually is, um, I think, is what I've been looking for whilst I've been studying is I've been looking for that kind of core of what is it we're trying to do. Are we trying to improve someone's you know, improve the intelligibility of someone's speech, for example, or are we trying to improve their well being and improve their life and improve their ability Mm -hmm. to engage with their community? Mm -hmm. And yeah this has been like thank you so much for bringing this to us because um i think Mm. this is really important really important um i wanted to kind of um summarize what what we've been talking about and um kind of try and if we can formulate some um, some tips or some practical advice for students and for NQPs I'm going to be an NQP very shortly so I would love <laughs> citing love your tips um, about what they can do to engage with social prescribing and to try and keep that that naivety or that spark alive and mm. um, through placements and through through practice as well um, so should i start with you katie maybe you in particular have some tips for students seeing as you're in the midst of it at the moment yes um so
1: i guess um things that students can do to kind of promote uh, social prescribing um i guess when you're on placement um just keep an eye out even if it's just for you know um uh, not necessarily opportunities to socially prescribe yourself but just people who might benefit from it and kind of having those conversations with your PEs, your your practice educator um, and just talking to people about it, other allied health professionals, anyone you come across um, making sure that it's kind of still part of the conversation especially if you're um, uh, in an environment where you can see lots of potential people who could benefit from social prescribing. Um, I guess as well, please, if you're coming to UCL if, uh, next year, then come to my uh, my talks <laughs> about social prescribing. Come and learn more. Um, if you're not coming to UCL um, or if you're, you're already out and about, um, then I guess um, just educating yourself about it and learning about it um, in whatever way you can and there's an e-learning for health uh, training which I'm sure everyone would be delighted to, to do um, and linking back to something Mariam said earlier I think you know the, the absolute crux of social prescribing is these local organisations and services being there for people to be social prescribed into and so something that we can all do um, and students can definitely do is promote those organizations support those organizations it doesn't necessarily have to be you know through money it can be through time and expertise as people who are being trained in what we're being trained in so um, yeah those are some things students can do
0: yeah and just o- on that point as well I suppose we also have an audience of people who are hoping to become students Um, studying on speech and language courses. And I know that a large group of those people are volunteering with different organisations and and helping to keep them going. So that work is also really important for um, supporting the community. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mariam, any tips for students or for NQPs? So one of the um, main and really important ways um, of doing this work is to
4: um, one, find and be in community for yourself, so join um, the social prescribing network if you want, would like to, if you're interested, um, get yourself a mentor, etc. Um, and the other way is actually to seek out those opportunities to be in community with um, the service users, the people, the community that you work in, that you're located in, your service is located in or is targeting how well do you do you know them on a on a human level on a person level on a what does their life look like what would they like to and um, work on what would they like to get out of coming to therapy and or just engaging with services because sometimes we actually need to cast our net broader and um, and then through that do some further fine tuning in terms of where does the work of therapy need to be situated within that experience so kind of a a more bottom-up exploration of the lived experience as a starting point of your service users
3: so I think ultimately it's a question of how how will our work hold relevance how can we be more meaningful um, and really be thinking about liberation as the context and the absolute core of the work that we do
0: thank you so much for coming and speaking with us your your views and your experience are so valuable um and i think yeah I've, i will take away so much from this um to think about and hopefully this conversation in some small way will contribute um contribute to other people's perspectives being changed um and at least <laughs> at least thinking about this as a topic Thank you both so much for coming.
3: (laughs) Thank you for having us.